Streams are up. Let's go, Raj. All right. So there's no music today, kids. All right. So I guess we're just going to start the show off here cold. And uh, good morning. It's the Friday edition, and we're at the 16th of, looks like, of uh, June. And uh, just had some technical problems. Don't know why, as usual. Uh, but anyway, it's the Friday edition. And, of course, Roger Sales here. And we've got, I think, maybe Brent Winters with us. Uh, if Brent's joined us already, I don't know. Um so this all happened, and I don't understand what, why. It's something, obviously, some technical stuff. Uh, but uh, when I posted the show from yesterday, uh, evidently I started getting feedback back from some of you that it was very, very garbled. And so, and there was another one earlier this week that was the same thing. Uh, and I went back to try and check and trace it down to see if it was originating if it's in the original recording and in doing so it screwed something up so uh anyway that's where we are we'll see if we can get it straight i guess uh anyway we'll roll on without uh, lorena mckenna and a nice intro and the bed and all that kind of stuff uh brent looks like you showed up with us this morning do i see cc over there yeah roger i'm here okay you seem good if I'm being heard clearly, I'll try to get a different mic if I'm not. No, you're real clear. You're no. real clear. Good today. Okay. So, uh, Brent, I wonder if you heard yesterday or this week that um, Klaus Schwab said God is dead and Noel, however you say his name, that little sodomite Jew bastard Harari, it says well, we can take AI and rewrite the Bible to make it. I don't know what he said anyway. So uh, God's dead, and they're going to rewrite the Bible with AI. So hold on to your manuscripts, Brent. Wow, sure. Uh, God is quaking in his boots. <laughs> all scared of that kind of talk. It's, are we on the main uh, spool yet, or are we still? Oh, we're we're going, baby. We're going. Oh. We just don't have any music. Oh, oh, okay. Well, yeah, that it's not like they're the first uh, to have said that. And uh, it doesn't go good for people that say things like that. Matter of fact, it goes very badly. Uh, God toys with people like cats toy with mice. If you've ever seen a cat toy with a mouse before he kills it, that's what you're watching, and you'll see it again. Guaranteed, the law of God is not to be mocked. And that's his law. That's the way he does it. He does it at his pleasure, at his time. And he makes it clear to everyone that those that do that are going to suffer the consequences. Now, I couldn't say that, of course, to get away to saying that to a, a judge in a courtroom or something that, as demeaning as that. What makes the people think that they can talk about the maker of heaven and earth and all that in them is and do that kind of thing, expect there won't be any consequences. Uh, spit in God's face. Of course, it happens every day. That's just one example. There are many, 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 all day long. And that's why, of course, the Bible says that the wrath of God, they keep coming back to that, that point of which Paul the Apostle takes judicial notice. That means it, uh, it's self-evident. He didn't have to prove it. It starts this whole scheme of of reasoning, logic, if you will, 
in the book of Romans chapter 1 with the fact that he he says is self-evident, needs no proof. The wrath of God is continually being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men because they hold the truth in, in their unrighteousness. So I see it, and that's what most of Christendom, D-U-M-B, ignores and wants to talk about rah, 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 and everything's getting great and everything's beautiful. That will get you worse in, uh, into uh, judgment than, than uh, doing what God demands. And what God demands is to recognize how bad it is. If you're willing to recognize how bad it is, the blessings come. That's what the Bible teaches. God protects you. He protects us and he fights for us and he destroys our enemies and they run every way from us. And that means you individually. And uh, I realize uh, most people won't go that way, but it doesn't take most people to go that way. It's not a rah, rah, rah. America's going to be great again. If we all just be good people, that ain't going to happen. What we start with and what we keep doing is um, being careful not to show dishonor to our maker. That's where it starts, and that's where it continues, and that's the attitude that carries us through to the end. That's what we need to be doing. But people that do otherwise, like these fellows you just told me about, well, they've been doing that for for centuries, that particular uh, religious point of view, along with uh, many others, some more salient and... and, uh, up front, front and center than others. I talk constantly about Romanism, Judaism, and Islam. Those are front and center. They're large. They're powerful. They don't need anybody to defend them. They, they either they can defend themselves or they can't. It ceases to amaze me, like a lot of things. I'm sure it is with you, Roger. Uh, people will try to defend those kinds of things. They claim to be big boys. They claim they can defend themselves. Why does it take... Um, they're, they're slaves, those that are enslaved to their points of view to defend them. That's what they do. They come out viciously toward anyone who would question them or attack them. They were all relegated me to hell officially. I can show you the documents. I'm relegated to hell and, and marked for death simply because I, I, reject, I reject their authority. They don't have any. They're acting without authority in violation of fundamental law. Well, sure yeah, well, that, that's the way I'm, I wanted to mention a verse, if I might. Uh, well-known verse. Matter of fact, as you're, as you're approaching that, I'm going to give you a memory peg that last week, as we closed out, we were going to talk about oaths at some point. So oh. stick that in your back pocket. Uh, did you say as in O-A-T-H-S? Yes, sir. Remember, we closed oh. out the conversation last week talking about that. So, I, anyway, just reminding you if you want to go there. Yeah, here's what I remember usually in those situations. I remember that we made a point of saying we're going to continue the discussion uh, on some subject, but I seldom remember what the subject is. Well, I do remember. <laughs> so, I'm glad you brought it up. Well, we can do that. Let's well, start. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I, I I remembered that, and I wanted to bring it yeah. forward. So as you're going into Romans, there. Well, here's what I can do, or what we can do. I can tie that into what I wanted to talk about here, briefly, and uh, what I wanted to talk about 
briefly, and then we, the oath can be tied to it and the significance of it. And that is Second Chronicles seven fourteen. Second Chronicles seven fourteen, a well known verse of scripture, and uh, I can quote it here as King Jimmy's boys quote it. I was I did a memorial service for one of the elders in our little group. Roger, we get on Sunday. Right. We call Dan, them. right? Wasn't it Dan from Montana? No. Uh, Dan's the other one. Oh, okay. Randy from Randy. Randy, he just unexpectedly up and decided he was leaving this world, and he checked out. He was uh, 70 years old. He wasn't real old, but anyway, I went to they, his uh, widow got a little, a little church down there where we could have a little service, and it was a... Uh, a Baptist church and they're King James only church. Mm. And I'm familiar with the, the, the pastor down there, nice fella. And he's a good Bible teacher. And, uh, you can learn a lot from him, but he's King James only. And I'm not. And his assistant pastor was there and he was kind enough to run the board back in the back and make sure at the end, what we did, Roger, it was, uh, a nice twist the way Heather did it. She, people came to me afterwards and said, Oh, what a wonderful job. And thank you for coming. I said, look, all I did was cook book what Heather told me to do. She gave me a list and said, here's, I want to sing these songs. I want you to present the gospel on, at this point. And, and, uh, it worked out great. But at the end, because we'd been on Patriot soapbox and all those church services were recorded, at the end, I would ask, um, I would ask Randy to pray, and Randy had a very popular radio program in uh, South and South uh, Central and Central Arizona, powerfully popular, so popular that uh, he ended up telling people to call the state capitol one day and. It, they shut down the state capitol telephone telephone uh, system, jammed it up. He was wanting to make a point, and he didn't do it, really. He just encouraged people to call. That testified to how many people were listening, and that caused a lot of uproar. But he was a good radio host. That's how I got to know him. I was on his show once. But uh, he could deliver the most potent prayers, he was good with words. And so Heather gathered up all those prayers that he had recorded. And at the end of the memorial service, I said, well, that's all I've got to say. So we're going to ask Randy to close in prayer. I didn't say it just that way, but that's essentially what happened. Then the assistant preacher at that Baptist church was sitting in the back and he punched a little button, had it queued up and Randy closed in prayer. <laughs> and, yeah, closing your own memorial service. Yeah, such a deal. It made me think of Tom Sawyer. You remember Tom Sawyer went to his own funeral service? <laughs> yeah, remember that? And he was in the back. He snuck in the back during the service. He wanted to listen. <laughs> they thought he'd drown, see, and they they uh he dis they ran away. They wanted to be pirates at first, and then they and then they ended up ran running away and 
and they made a blood oath. All these boys, like boys do, you know. We used to do that. Did you do that, Roger, growing up, where you'd break your finger and you'd you'd make a blood oath to each other as boys? I don't remember doing that. Well, we did that kind of stuff. And uh, that, by the way, that's not a smart thing to do. But boys don't know what they're doing. And did I have a clue what an oath was at that time? And the answer is no. But I knew it had something to do with blood, and it does, by the way. The word blessing, our Anglo word, Anglo word blessing, has to do with blood. That's what that mm. word means. It's uh, mm. Blood's an important part of the oath, according to our maker. And it has been among mankind, anciently, for several thousand years. Without blood, the oath is um, less understood. That's why the old song we used to sing in church, your oath your covenant and your blood support me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, you or these, these, the oath, the covenant and the blood are all my help and stay on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And it comes down to those three things. Uh, the oath, the covenant, and the blood. Wait just one minute. Hang on just a minute, Roger. I'm trying to figure okay. out how to make sure this thing is working. And it's working good. It's working good. Now let me oh, see. You if- sound, sound great. Must be the phase of the moon or something with all this technical stuff. We are. We're back now. We're here, Roger. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Well, the oath. I was going to read uh, First Chronicles seven fourteen, but we can do that in a little bit and talk about maybe the application of it. But uh, the oath is uh, a calling, an invoking of a more powerful party to witness your promise mm-hmm. to another man. The oath is you calling in a more powerful party to witness your oath to another man for the purpose of enforcing, helping enforce the promise that you make to the other man. You see, the oath and the promise are two different things. That's why the old songwriter said, your oath, your covenant, and your blood. Oath is one thing. Covenant, that's an old Latin word that means promise. The English word is undertaking. Now, you remember uh, I, when I was in school, we, we learned in school about the underwriter's laboratory. Did you learn mm-hmm. about that, Roger? Well, I didn't learn about it, but I know about it. I mean, that they go and check stuff out to make sure it's what it's supposed to be, I guess. Yes, and, and that's the Underwriters Laboratory. Very prestigious as one time. I, I don't know much about them now, but they would underwrite a piece of equipment or a, a product if somebody made a piece of electrical equipment, a motor or a tool, and the Underwriters Laboratory would underwrite the piece of equipment or tool and they would promise that they would underwrite it, promising that what it is 
advertised to be capable of doing, it will do. Right. The underwriter's laboratory. Well, to underwrite something is to reaffirm or affirm or promise. That's an un- we also say an undertaking. Underwriting is an undertaking. It's a promise. That's uh, you. You sign a p- 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 uh, an affidavit, for instance. You're you're signing it. You're saying everything I said on here is true. You're underwriting the statement. You're promising is true. But then when you add an oath to it, when you add an oath to it, you're calling in a more powerful party to witness your promise and to enforce it against you. You must be more powerful than you, that party that you call in. Now, in, in the Bible, in the Christian world, the oath is, that's swear, called swearing. There are three synonyms, oath, to be sworn or to swear, and vow. Maybe I should first distinguish between oath and vow. An oath is a calling in of a more powerful party to witness your undertaking, your promise to another man. A vow is just simply a promise to God, period. It has the same effect because if you're promising something to God, not to another man, then you don't need to call God in to witness your promise. You don't need the oath, you see. So an oath and a vow have the same effect, but the oath is to men or a man. The vow is to God. The vow, you don't, when you vow, that means you're promising something to God. You don't need to call God in to witness that because he's already there and he will enforce it, by the, by the way. He promises, he promises to do that in the Bible. Now the oath is to another man. Therefore, it's, it's important that uh, the promise maker promising another man something call in this more powerful party to witness his promise to another man or men. And that's why when people take public office in the United States, our Constitution of the United States, following the common law, ancient common law rule, requires that every office holder in the United States, state and federal, take or um, swear an oath to the promise that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies foreign, that's militia duty, and domestic, that's jury duty. That's an ancient, ancient common law oath, and our Constitution is... The supreme law of the land, that means it is a common law document about the way things ought to be done, about due process. It's not substantive. It doesn't tell you who the president's going to be. It tells you how to go about electing him. It's a document about how, and that's what our common law is. Our common law is about process, not substance, not right and wrong. Do this, don't do that. Uh, Thou shalt not covet, lie, steal, commit adultery, and murder. The Constitution is not about that. Those things aren't mentioned in there. It's about process as applied to government. And that oath is to be uh, something administered. There it's all in the Bible. Therefore, it's always in the passive. The Bible never says that anybody swore an oath. Never. It always says that so-and-so was sworn in the passive. I didn't swear. I was sworn. That means there's a witness watching. Now, the oath, the Bible, this is what we wanted to get to. 
the oath, the Bible says, is, uh, um, it doesn't say, oh, I, I remember now the conversation. In the Old Testament, the law of God says that um, if you swear, or if you are sworn, to be more accurate, if you are sworn, that means you are sworn to a promise, that means you attach an oath to your promise to other men that don't ever swear or be sworn by anything but God, or any person, rather, but God. In other words, the more powerful party you swear to must be God, and anything else you'd swear to is idolatry. That's the very essence of idolatry. What is idolatry? Attributing a power that belongs only to God to some created thing that God created. God said, if you're going to swear an oath, you only swear or be sworn by me. I'm the greater power. Me and no other, he says, me and no more. Not by heaven. Do not swear by heaven. Do not say, oh, heavens. No, don't do that. Uh, which is his abode. And do not swear by earth, land, and ocean. No, don't do that. Because if you do that, you're swearing by his footstool. Do not swear by the gold on the temple, said Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were swearing by the gold on the temple. He said, don't do that. Don't swear by anything. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. That's swearing by yourself, that you're going to stick a needle in your eye if you don't keep your promise. Uh, that's paganism, because that attributes the power that God says is reserved only for him, only to be attributed to him, only to be recognized by men in him. If you do that to any other thing like yourself, some created thing, that's paganism. That, but more particularly, that's idolatry. What is idolatry? That is idolatry is attributing a power that only belongs to your maker to some other created thing. For instance, people that go to the Roman mass are attributing or recognizing a power in the Roman priest that God alone says he only has. The power of the Roman priest, you're attributing to him a, a power to call Jesus Christ, the God in human flesh, from heaven at his command, at the priest's command, to come down and sacrifice himself again. Read the documents. That's the Council of Trent. That's a damnable lie from hell. And what it says is the priest has a power that, that only Jesus Christ has. Again, that is idolatry, attributing power to a created thing who, a mere mortal sinful man that has the power to, to have the power that God claims for himself. So that, that's just some fundamental, or Mecca in Islam, turning and praying toward Mecca. That is gross idolatry. Why? Because you're attributing a power to a created thing, a place here on earth, that is a power that God says you're to only attribute to me. Now, they claim they're not idolaters, but they are. And there are several other examples of that. Idolatry is the mark of all false religion, all of it, because it all attributes. Listen, to, uh, Roger, you're going to say something. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop 
yeah, I'll, I'll stop here. Well, no, I just, I, I think it adds a little bit here from that old book, Historical Jurisprudence. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, the first 90 pages, of course, I talk about it occasionally on here, are on the Babylonian Merchant Code. Okay. okay. It starts out, I think the first sentence is Babylon's great contribution to the world was to reduce everything in the society down to the abstract form of contract. Uh It's interesting as they get into that, when contracts were signed in Babylon, the priest would come and say an incantation over you as you signed your signature to bind you to the oath. There it is. That's idolatry. You know, once you see the principle, what the clear, overarching, all-encompassing principle of idolatry, then just like you, you, you looked around and said, yeah, in your conscious, you have that consciousness of that fact. You say, oh, I see it applies here, it applies here, it applies here. It's, I see it everywhere. You will see it everywhere because men everywhere practice idolatry, even, of uh, course, in uh, all of Christendom and Protestantism. They, I was just talking this morning, the Cumberland Presbyterian, uh, the Cumberland Presbyterians, and you've heard me say, some of you maybe, there were three main groups that founded America, and they were all intensely religious. They were all intensely Calvinistic. Calvinistic, I didn't say Calvinist. I said Calvinistic. That means that, that their God was so big they couldn't understand how big he was, and they admitted it. And man was, by comparison, a pen, not a pinch of nothing. Well, they all, the Presbyterians, they all have had vestiges of this idolatry. Uh, infant baptism is a vestige of idolatry. Uh, the Lutherans retained it from Rome. Rome has it, of course. The Lutherans retained it. And the Presbyterians retained it, as did the Dutch Reformed groups. I have friends in all of those groups, and they, they disagree with me with great passion, but it's just simply not in the Bible. It is idolatry. It is to attribute to a created thing, an act of a man, that which only belongs to God says, no, 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 only me. Uh, For example, the Cumberland Presbyterians, the Presbyterians were driven to the edges of the settlements in New England and Pennsylvania, and the reason is because people didn't like Irish people. Well, you say, but the Presbyterians weren't Irish. That's right, they weren't, but they came from Ireland, so people thought they were Irish. They were they were Scotsmen that mm-hmm. had settled in Ulster at the behest of the crown. And then they migrated to America. And so people got to calling them the Scotch-Irish, the Scotsmen that were from Ireland. Well, people in America just said, well, they're Irish. And they just hated them to high heaven. You talk about racism against the Irish. It was worse than racism against the African. You know, Africans were worth more than Irishmen in America for decades because there were so many Irishmen, the labor was cheaper, and they were, as a people, were worth less. And, of course, the Irishmen, but along with the Englishmen and the Scotsmen, sold themselves into slavery and the Caribbean. And so it all got mixed up over here in America, and they couldn't make the distinction. The Scotsman didn't like that. It hurt his feelings. But nonetheless, he was rejected from polite society and uh, driven to the edges of the frontiers and ended up even in Pennsylvania, a lot of them came in through New York and Pennsylvania, and the, the Puritans came in the 1600s. The Scotch-Irish began coming in the later in the 1700s. And uh, by that time, uh, they were being pushed to the edges of the 
settlements. They were all over the colonies, but a lot of them in Pennsylvania and New York, and they they quickly migrated to the edges to the Allegheny Mountains. Well, the Allegheny Mountains, of course, were mountains that were thousands of miles long. You know, one mountain, hundreds of miles long at least, and they ran generally the, these ridges, as they called them, but they were mountains, long mountains that ran generally uh, south. So the easy way to travel was down the river valleys between those mountains, and they migrated south into Kentucky and North Carolina, and they all kind of stayed in the mountains, and they broke forth uh, in places like the Cumberland Gap. They could get out into Kentucky, and it was a clear shot, and they migrated in that direction. When they got west of the Alleghenies, in the Alleghenies and west, they were Presbyterians, and they wanted to take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper to a Presbyterian is very much stronger than it is to a Baptist uh, in their minds. And matter of fact, it it borders so close to idolatry in Presbyterianism that, uh, well, the Baptists couldn't stomach it. That's the truth of the matter. The Lutherans are just like the Romanists. They got the Romanists, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians. The Romanists says that uh, the Mass is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and the priest has the power to do that. Well, that's a tribute to, uh, to make it the body and blood. So, that's idolatry, of course, to look at bread and wine as though it is the body and blood because you're attributing to a created thing. Godhood, that's what it boils down to. That's why the Reformation was, was, so, was so intense on that point. Well, the Presbyterians said, oh, no, no, no. The Lutherans agreed with the Catholics, but the Presbyterians said, no, 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 no. No, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not. Uh, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the Presbyterians have always been rather cerebral. That means they uh, d- they were written deep into logic. Uh, Luther, by the way, wasn't. Let me back up. This is a fascinating fact in church history. So the, the, the Romanist says, no, this is the body and the blood. And the priest has the power. That's idolatry. That's Id- idolatry of a priest. Has the power to change it to the body and blood. Well, that's the idolatry of bread and wine attributing power to that, godhood, really, the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. And and then the Luther came along and said, no, 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 that's silliness. You guys have thought this through too much. He said, you use Aristotle's theology of, and his accidents and incidents, that's what he called them in these Greek-based terms, to describe what the Mass is. It is all Aristotelian. And of course, that... He's just nothing but a homosexual and a pedophile to make it worse. Is it any wonder that a Roman priest are shot through with that? Of course not. That's their, the foundation is scholasticism, Aristotle, Plato, all that baloney, all that logic over fact. Well, Luther came along and he said, why do you go through all those logical gymnastics and the accidents and the incidents of, of the mass to try to explain how that, see, they try to explain how it is that the priest can pull this off using logic and uh, the terms of of Greek logic. And Luther said, that's stupid. No, the Bible speaks, that ends the matter. The Bible says, this is my blood, why do you have to explain it? That's Lutheranism. So Romanism justifies the Roman mass using scholastics, logic, not fact, logic. Luther says, no, I justify the mass using the fact that the Bible says to me. This is my body. That's fact, he says. Jesus said it. That ends all discussion. Let's go with it. Well, that's a gross misinterpretation. Uh, 
of what Jesus meant by what he said. That's just a downright silliness. But I respect Luther's point of view about the Bible. If the Bible is clear on any point, that's a fact. It doesn't require logical justification. So that's Lutheranism on the Mass. And then the Presbyterians came along and said, no, 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 you Roman Catholics, you think you're so blasted smart. We've got logic and, and Aristotelian theology down tighter than you, and we can think more than you, and we can think better than you. And so they ended up, uh, the Presbyterians, explaining uh, the whole thing about the Lord's Supper using Aristotle's logic and, um, and his language. And they said, we outstripped the Romanist using logic. So you got those three points of view, and all of them are wrong. All of them. The truth is, Jesus Christ is uh, the Lord's Supper is the Passover of the Old Testament. It pointed forward as a symbol to something that was going to happen in the future. And what happened in the future happened. It happened once in the book of Hebrews. It doesn't happen again because it was so powerful. It doesn't need to be done over and over and over. It's a memorial, not idolatry. These are symbols. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the intelligent Protestant point of view about that. Intelligent? I mean, that's just what the Bible teaches. It's just that simple. There's nothing confusing about it. Jesus said, I am the door. He said, I am the shepherd. Well, is he a shepherd? Well, that's an analogy. He's like a shepherd. Is he a door? Well, it's an analogy. He's like a door. I, he said, I am the vine. Is he a vine? No, it's analogy. He said, this is my body. Is, is this the bread and wine at, at, the, at Passover, his body? No, it's a, an analogy. It's not like this is hard, friends. And Jesus later said, I will not drink in that same uh, transaction. He said, I will not drink of this cup. Uh, the fruit of the vine, until I do so in my kingdom. So he says right at the Lord's Supper, this is fruit of the vine. It's not blood. No, he didn't change it to blood. Well, the Presbyterians got into the mountains, and they didn't know educated, no educated Presbyterian, and they're big, they're big on having an educated clergy. No educated clergy was ordained to deliver the Lord's Supper. So they got over, and uh, they poured up through the Cumberland Gap into Kentucky. And there was a Presbyterian, uh, one Presbyterian preacher there that was duly ordained from the boys back east. And he said, you know, these people, these Kentuckians haven't had uh, Lord's Supper for a long time because no educated Presbyterian is going to come and risk getting killed by the Indians, roasted alive and eaten, which is what they were doing in Kentucky pretty consistently. The Shawnee were big on, ro on roasting people alive and eating them. And, uh, he said, uh, there's none here. I'm here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to conduct the Lord's Supper because I'm ordained to do it. And he said, I'm going to invite people to come from all over creation to come to the Lord's Supper. And he did. Thousands, and this is what surprised him, not hundreds, thousands came. Word got out. They came from east of the Alleghenies to come to the Lord's Supper at a place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And uh, I'm rather familiar with Cane Ridge because my mother's family's from down there, in that right in that uh, neck of the woods. And the old church is still there where he pastored an old stone building on Cane Ridge. And his um, he had a big meeting. Thousands came. They came in wagon trains, Roger. 
from all over. They heard about the Cane Ridge. They called it the Cane Ridge Revival, and he didn't even know there was going to be a revival. You know? <laughs> so he, had, he had thousands upon thousands of people came there to take the Lord's Supper all over the wilderness, from up in Ohio, down into Kentucky and Tennessee and um, western Kentucky. And the Cane Ridge Revival Meeting, is what it came to be called, was nothing but a, a large, the lar- a large, probably the largest Lord's Supper ever conducted. And um, Baptists got involved. Um, the um, Presbyterians got involved. The Lutherans that were there, and there were Lutheran, you know, the first speaker of the House of Representatives was a Lutheran, a Lutheran. Uh, educated, by the way, at a seminary in Europe. Um, so there were Lutherans there, there were Baptists there, there were Presbyterians there, there were Anglicans and Puritans there. Uh, it just became a mania. But it was a true revival because it was never planned. It's something that somehow the word got out and people got excited about it and they all came. That became the prototype of all revivalism in America after that. And revivalism in America had finally petered out. Starting way back there around 1800 or whenever it was, it petered out with Billy Graham. Billy Graham was the last vestige of a movement of revival in the English-speaking world that went on all those years. Oh. You know, there was uh, the Welsh revival in 1905 became part of that. And then uh, many other revivals in America, of course, started with, uh, but the, the, the Cane Ridge revival st- started a new idea that fostered the entire charismatic movement in America. And what you see with these TV preachers is the offshoots of that revival. Most of it is trash. Most of it is a damnable lie. We had a, not all of it, not all of it, mo- most of it. We had this thing happen, the Asbury revival recently that became so pervasive. Is that one, the one in Kentucky? In Kentucky, right. I heard about it. You did? I did. Yeah, it was. recent within the last six, eight months, right? Yeah, people came from hundreds, maybe thousands of people came from all over. Uh, I'm convinced it was a manufactured deal, and it petered out real quick. Yeah, I just. Now, Asbury seminary in Kentucky, Asbury College, is an old Methodist college that has went off the, the, went off the rails a long time ago. Francis Asbury was, he was the Methodist circuit writer, the original Methodist circuit writer of the world and course of America. And Francis Asbury is responsible for bringing Christianity to the Ohio Valley. And found and uh, making it a rural, a country church movement, he rode. He knew more people in America than anybody. He wasn't the only one, but he was the greatest one. He he could have run for president of the United States. People said, and hands down, he'd have beat anybody that that would have challenged him because he spent his whole life in the wilderness, going from house and cabin to cabin in those days, cabin handing out Bibles, making sure, catechizing people in a simple way, telling them children, telling children and these rustic, these rustic clothed animals, people call them, that lived in the wilderness, moms and dads and babies, uh, what the Trinity is, who God is, that means he's triune, telling them what the Bible is, 
teaching them the Lord's Prayer, person by bloody person, as they say, and he evangelized. The, he's responsible for all these hundreds of thousands, him and those who worked under his tutelage, hundreds of thousands of churches uh, that are scattered across Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma, and into the Allegheny Mountains. He's the one responsible, West Virginia. He rode all those places, and he he started all those little tiny churches. And that, friends, neighbors, and kin, is the heart and the breadbasket and the founding of America. That's where it really came to full fruition. The little country churches with uneducated preachers that took simply took their English Bible and told people about Jesus Christ, told people that they were sinners and going to hell. That's the, the, that's the earthy movement behind what America has always been and what, what she became and what she has always been. And anything less than that will destroy us. But for, all, for all of its rusticness and simplicity, that's it. Um, Roger, what's that? Back, back to the Lord's Supper. And one of the things, you know, you talk a lot about Witherspoon. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't know, a year or so ago, one of the listeners sent us a little video on with a lot of information on his life. Uh-huh. And, and I thought it was particularly interesting that he had been courted by the Americans to come over to America, and he had decided not to. Remember uh-huh. that from the video? He had decided not to go. And what happened was there was a mockery of the Lord's Supper in one of the pubs there by the uh, uneducated, I guess you could say. And he heard about it, and he reconsidered his decision and moved to America to do all the stuff he did for us because of a fake uh, sat. Satire, I guess you could call it, uh, Lord's Supper put on in a pub. Yeah, he, he got discouraged. Of course, Scotland, he was from Scotland, and he was the leader of the Scottish Enlightenment, the unofficial leader of the Scottish Enlightenment. And he was part of that movement that continued with John Knox, the Scottish Enlightenment took over all of the English-speaking world. These are the things that came together to form America. I'm talking about the Cane Ridge Revival. Of course, before mm-hmm. that was Whitfield, but before that was Witherspoon. Witherspoon is called the father or the, the, the teacher of the founders, the founders' teachers, because so many of them that signed our, signed our, signed our founding documents were his students at Princeton College. He signed now, it too, didn't he? Didn't he sign the declaration? The declaration, yeah. I believe he, designed, he signed the declaration Witherspoon. But the Scottish Enlightenment was the product of the Scottish Reformation. The Scottish Reformation occurred, of course, in Scotland, and it occurred concurrently, simultaneously, with the Puritan Reformation in England. And so together, those two came together. The Enlightenment overtook all of England and all of the English-speaking world. John Locke was an Englishman, and he was the greatest of all the fans of the Scottish Enlightenment. And his writings that Tom Jefferson picked up and used his phrases in our Declaration of 76, so much from Locke's second treatise of government, uh, Locke was reflecting what came out of the Scottish Enlightenment. 
the Scottish Enlightenment, again, Witherspoon became the unofficial but the clear leader of the Scottish Enlightenment, the intellectual leader. But the Scottish Enlightenment rose out of the Reformation. Uh, John Knox was the apparent upfront man during the Scottish Reformation. And what the Scottish Reformation established was the absolute finality of the authority of the Bible. Uh, the Puritan Reformation established the same thing. And, of course, they both fought side by side and then against each other later because of their racism toward each other. But uh, And the funny thing about that is there's not a which bit of difference in the races themselves. They have become so mixed over the centuries, the Celts and the, the Germanic tribes that came there, that it's silly to talk about it, but we still do. There are cultural differences, some, but they were all speakers of English. And they, in Scotland, however, here's what they said. They became more practical after establishing the, the, um, the authority of the Bible as final and without appeal. They also uh, said, well, they looked around and said, uh, what about all these laws of God we see operating in creation? We're talking about physics here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about what people today, well, then they called it natural philosophy. Philosophy, In other words, how, do we, how are we to think about the laws that we observe happening? the law of gravity, the law of, of perpetual motion, the laws that pertain to electricity and light and hydraulics. Those are all laws that no one can break. Uh, they always work. God sees to it that they work. He made them. So the Scottish Enlightenment added the laws of nature as authoritative to the Bible. What, what, what else do we call the laws of nature? Many, many names for it are common law as one of those names. That's why the Declaration of 76, John Locke reflecting the Scottish Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment acknowledged, and it had got out of hand and didn't later in some places, but it acknowledged that God has given us two volumes of revelation of his law, which is revelation of his will, which is revealing of his person. If you want to know who somebody is in their heart of hearts and their core, if you can find out what they really want down deep, you know who they are. Well, that's the way it is with our maker. And he reveals those things to us in two volumes. The one volume is unwritten. That's what we observe in, our, in the creation around us. The, as Blackstone says, the relationships and the reactions between objects and objects, objects and men, and between men and men, those are laws. You can't change them. They always come out the same. And to, to study those and to learn to abide by them is to be able to stay alive. The laws of the seasons of weather, we, uh, we, we ignore those at the peril of starving to death. Or freezing. And freezing to death. Yes, those are laws. And your body has to say, uh, of course, steadily at 98.6, that's a law of nature. There is a small variation possible. There's also a law of nature that says if you get above or uh, yeah, your temperature gets Below 95, you're not coming back and you'll die. That's the general rule. For a certain laws like that. And so, out of the Scottish Reformation. Hold on a second, Brent. Somebody's got their mic open. Please, please check the mic. There's a lot of really peripheral noise coming in here, please. So, out of the Scottish Reformation, those two volumes came, and that's why. Uh, um, uh, Tom Jefferson 
repeating the ideas of John Locke, which he was, uh, he was deeply involved in the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, the laws of nature, that's the phrase they used to talk about our common law. That's another name for it. Uh, the unwritten laws, the things we observe, our constitution is an observation of our common law recorded. That's what it is, an observation of our common law recorded. But the laws of nature's God, that second volume, God saw to the recordation of that. And that's the final rule in cases of apparent inconsistencies between these two volumes. These are the conclusions that men came to during the Reformation. Are they right? I'm fully convinced they're right. Uh, is, is it an accident that the Scottish Enlightenment produced um, across the board all of the disciplines of science that we enjoy and use today to discover the laws of nature, the laws of, uh, for example, uh, Ohm's law, Ohm's law of electricity, where'd that come from? It came from Scotland. Uh, the laws of um, Faraday, we talk today about Faraday cages. Mm-hmm. Well, Faraday was a Scottishman. He was so biblical. He belonged to a small sect of Presbyterians that everyone hated. They were so intensely biblical that the Presbyterians couldn't even stand them. But that was Michael Faraday. Why is it? Well, there are others uh, we, we could talk about. Watt and uh, uh, who was the Boyle? Boyle, you know, Boyle's Law of Hydrology. Uh-huh. All of that came out of the Scottish Enlightenment. And the tail end of the Scottish Enlightenment, the study of nature that has become so influential to us, was the invention of television which um, two Scotsmen in Scotland invented in the 1920s. That was the tail end, the fizzling out of the Scottish Enlightenment. But the tradition continues. It's not a Scottish tradition. It's a tradition of the English-speaking world that arose out of the Reformation in Britain, and more particularly Scotland, and overtook Scotland. Our country is, uh, is the result of that, that uh, particular point of view about those two volumes of God's revelation of his laws. To repeat... Those two volumes, one, the first is unwritten. We have many names for it. We call it the laws of nature. We call it our common law, different slices of it. And then that's the first volume meant to be observed in our surroundings, sometimes recorded in writing, such as our legislation, if it's proper, or um, legislation calculated to achieve the uh, to work with those laws, such as the Habeas Corpus Act of Parliament. Um, then we have the laws of nature's God that God has recorded using men pouring his truth through their personalities and their consciousness while preserving their personalities and whatever they have in their hopper in their brain, preserving that in the writings we call the Bible. That is final. That's called the doctrine of inerrancy. That's a Christian doctrine. It comes from Christendom. It's different than all the rest of the world as well. That's who we are as a people. If we deny those things, God will cut us off. Cut off any man or woman that denies it. These fellows that say God is dead, they're cut off. They, as the Bible says in Romans 1, um, God has abandoned their brains. That doesn't mean they can't use logic. It just means they don't have any discernment as to where to start their logic properly so that they can properly come to a conclusion, a right conclusion. That's what the Scottish Enlightenment was all about. We are the product of that as English-speaking people here in America. 
And we, if we don't pay attention to it, we will be destroyed. It's that simple. There have been many people that have ignored it. It is idolatry. Well, the oath, coming back to the oath. The oath, uh, in our Christian world, we have observed that the oath, since it's only to be sworn by calling God in and no other, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, calling him in, because of that, um, it is called an act of religious worship. It's not just any act. Any oath you take, any swearing you do, to be sworn is an act of religious worship because you're calling in a power greater than you that God himself says must be him and no other. Remember when Goliath had his showdown with David. David was probably about 15 at the time. Goliath was a man of war from his youth. He was a full-grown man, nine and one-half feet tall. David, of course, uh, he wasn't even that tall compared to others, according to the record. Doesn't say exactly, but he was like his brothers. His brothers, had they, they looked the part of a king uh, more than he did. But he faced off with this giant nine-and-a-half-foot-tall, a man of war with a sling and a stone. And the Bible says that when Goliath saw David, he cursed him by his pagan gods. He said, am I a dog that you send this stripling boy out here with a a sling and a staff? It was insulting to him, see? It was insulting. And David said, though, I'll I'll kill you. Who Who is this? creature that defies the armies of the living God. I'll, I'll do him like I did the bear and the, and the wolf, the lion, rather the bear and the lion. He said, uh, I'll knock him senseless with a stone and then I'll slit his throat. And that was the method of shepherd boys. They'd take the slingshot. They'd whirl it around with that centrifugal force to give it speed and they'd sling it and try to knock, hit the animal in the head, knock him scentless, senseless, then come over, wasn't as dangerous, and slit his throat. And that's what he did to Goliath. He slung the stone hard enough, it sunk into his forehead, knocked him, knocked him out. He fell on his face. David ran, climbed on top of him, drew out that heavy, heavy, heavy sword, and beheaded him in front of the armies of the Philistines and the armies of the Israelites. <laughs> what a story, but he swore, see, by his gods. He swore an oath, and he made a promise, and he supported the promise with an oath. That's what swearing is. He said, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you, David, to the birds and the wild carnivorous critters that roam around here in the wilderness. I'm just going to kill you and feed you to them. He made a promise. He supported it by an oath. That was idolatry. It was an act of religious worship. The Westminster Confession of the Presbyterians make the point that the swearing of an oath is an act of religious worship. I think I mentioned last time, and it says, and well says, if you do choose to swear an oath in support of a promise, you swear only by that, by that dreadful, that dreadful and fearful name. That dreadful and fearful authority is what it means when you say name. You're talking about the authority of a person, of uh, God himself, Yehovah. So that's why we do that. Now, the Bi- Jesus Christ 
says, according to King Jimmy's translators, uh, swear not at all, swear not at all. And that sounds like, in our understanding of English today, that says never swear. So the Quakers and uh, many other people I've met refuse to ever swear an oath. Well, I suppose you get away with that, won't hurt anything. It is a choice. You don't want to swear to an oath just all the time and freely. You must be very careful, swear very tightly to a, a promise that is tightly drawn if you choose to. And when you call in that powerful party, make sure it's only God, God alone, and no other. And that's what Jesus Christ teaches. And that phrase there, translated, swear not at all, is translated in other translations differently. I'm not complaining about the way they did it. Maybe at that time, as I said, it didn't mean, had the import and the force it has to us today of, of a prohibition. It's not a prohibition, not a prohibition in the text, the Greek text from which they translated it. And the Greek word there is holos. Uh, holos, omicron, lama, dama, or lambda, omicron, holos with an omega, sigma on the end. And we get our word whole. And what he's saying there is do not swear wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Not, not wholly. H-O-L-Y, that means separated and for a special purpose. But do not swear, some translations say, generally. That means do not swear with, to a promise without limit. I would never tell a lie. Never swear to something like that because you might tell a lie sometime. If you're going to swear, be very careful because the Bible says that uh, God will hold you to it. You call him in, he, 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 li- he likes that, that's worship. You call him in to enforce and visit his vengeance on you if you don't keep your promise. Well, he'll, he'll do it, he says. So don't do that. Be careful. And, and the Bible says, of course, uh, don't swear wholly. Don't swear generally. Don't swear broadly. That's another translation that people use. Do not swear broadly. Um, swear, well, swear to one thing. Swear to it very closely if you're going to swear. But I advise people. As a matter of law, getting along with God, not being destroyed. Um, Don't swear unless you don't really have any other choice. It's absolutely necessary to truth and justice. That's why we swear on witness stands, and you can choose to do that or not choose to do it. And affirming, an affirmation is a violation of the command of God. I affirm to tell the truth. What you're doing there is you're swearing by yourself. You're calling yourself in. That's idolatry. People, the, the Constitution says swear or affirm, and the Constitution is not the Bible. And I think that's a bad way to say it. And the reason they said that was because they didn't want to eliminate the Quaker, the Quakers in Pennsylvania, of which there were many. They didn't want to eliminate them from public life because Quakers say you're not to swear at all. Well, if you're not to swear at all, if you affirm, listen to me, if you affirm, then you're swearing and calling yourself in as an act of idolatry, uh, as a powerful party that'll visit, you're, you're depending upon yourself to keep your promise. Don't do that. Don't affirm. If you're going to swear, swear. I went to federal court once, they put me on the witness stand, and uh, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And I had chosen to testify. I didn't take the fifth. I could have taken the fifth and 
dealt with it that way. And I said, uh, at the end, as it says in the federal regulation or the federal uh, statute, I said, so help me God. I wanted to be careful that I wasn't swearing by anything else, but God and God alone. And I didn't want anybody else to get the impression that I was. So I'm saying that to you. Don't look to go be swearing, be being sworn in oath to support a promise. But if you ever do, and you think it's necessary to justice, you get called to the witness stand. Don't affirm, don't affirm. And the constitution is faulty at that point. No, that's why the Bible says there are two options for promises, two options. Jesus Christ laid them out in the Sermon on the Mount. You either say yes or no. Just state the promise. I will or I won't. And if you choose to swear, you call God in by name, Yahoha. He happens. The maker of heaven and earth. And that's who he is. Call him in, but be careful to draw the distinction. Uh, people say, but Jesus said not swear, not at all. I just went over that. But let's say for sake of argument, for sake of argument, that he did mean you should never swear or be sworn in the passage. Does that even fit? It doesn't say that, but does that even fit? If you just know English and read the Bible, you say, wait a minute. Jesus Christ said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where he's saying these things, he said, do not think that I came to ruin, destroy, or deny, mitigate the law of God. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. Fulfill. In other words, the law of God speaks of me, and I am I am the answer to the law of God. Not only did I write it, not only am I the only the, the final valid interpreter of it in application, I'm also the judge. That's what he's saying there. But he did say, I, I'm not going to change it. No siree Bob. And if I could change the law that I gave, then it's not law at all, and I'm not God at all. Because the God we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the maker of heaven and earth and all that in them is, never changes. That's in Hebrews. The same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? That means his will, the will of the sovereign, is law, and it never changes. The first principles of it do not change. The application, of course, in every case of that unchanging first principle, the application is as varied as our people and circumstances and facts. And the, the uh, task of God's man is to, is to uh, discern the proper application moment by moment in all of life. So what do we take from this to sum up? Number one, being sworn or swearing is calling in an oath, is calling in God. Is calling in a more powerful party to, to visit vengeance upon you and enforce your promise in case you falter. The Bible says, never call anybody in, but God himself, him and no other, him and no more, the creator of heaven and earth. If you do choose to swear, do not share, swear broadly. Do not swear generally. Uh, don't say, I'm never going to sin the rest of my life, I promise. Or I'd never do that, I've heard people say. Oh, don't kid me. Don't do that. Don't make those kind of promises. 
and then swear an oath to it on top of it. Don't do that. And do not affirm because affirmation is calling yourself in. Calling yourself in and force your own promise. That's attributing power and, and authority to do something that God says that he only has power and authority to do. Now, God himself does have that power and authority. That's why it says in Hebrews, his oath, his covenant, his blood on our behalf. It's a blood oath, a blood covenant. With his own blood, the blood of God, the Bible says in Acts, calling the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of God. And that oath, he said, having no one greater, more powerful to swear by, the maker of heaven and earth swore by himself to his own hurt. That's what he did. And matter of fact, he said, if I don't keep this promise that I'm making to my people to redeem them from their sins and hell, I'm going to do that, he said, and I'll swear by myself. And the Bible says in the Psalms, he did it to his own hurt. In other words, he paid a price for it. Yeah, he suffered cruel torture. God himself, and the reduced to the span of a man, suffered the most cruel of torture and the most cruel of death. And then suffered separation from God the Father. The, the um, otherwise inextricable connection he had with God the Father as a member of the triune God in some way we don't understand mysteriously. He was abandoned entirely by the Godhead. How do you explain that? You don't. The fact of it is stated. That was the worst torture of all. So he swore by himself. We do not have that option to swear by ourselves. Never do that. Never affirm, never swear. Back to you, Roger. Um, Brent, something came to me while you were talking about David and Goliath thing. Do you think Goliath and that tribe were Nephilim? Yeah, I do. That's my conclusion. I don't know if there, you could reach any other conclusion, could you? Uh, well, I don't get too worked up when people don't because I can see how they would come to their conclusion. I don't think they're stupid, and I don't think that they're insincere in, in many cases. But there are things like that in the Bible that we come to different conclusions about. And at what point, this is the question, it's important, at what point do you break off Christian fellowship with people? How do you know? How do you know that they are Christian folk? What tests does God give us to whereby I may know that I am a Christian man? What evidence do I have? And what is the proper evidence? And whereby I may know that the other man is. And here is one of the answers. Here's the foremost answer to that question, the foremost piece of evidence, among others. And I take this from the book of 1 John, which is a series of evidences whereby you may know that you have eternal life and whereby you may know that the other fellow that claims to be a Christian man has it too. And then you get to second John and third John, it gives you more information about uh, what to do in the case they aren't. Now we have a special relationship with those with, with, with uh, whose blood, who, who, who Jesus Christ's blood has cleansed them of all of their sins. That's what it says in John. Well, the foremost test is this, do you safeguard, do you have the drive to safeguard from addition or subtraction the written revelation of God called the Bible? Do you want to add other books to it? Do you want to take books away from it? 
Do you want to add words to it? Do you want to take words away from it? Do you want to remove laws from it like the Romanist and the Lutheran do? That's a dangerous thing to do. Remove the second commandment of the 10, split the last one into two parts, and then say there's 10. That's just one example, but there are an unknown number of examples of people adding to, if you add to the written revelation of God, you water it down and you weaken other parts of it. If you take away from it, ignore part of it, well, then uh, the doctrines of men, your doctrines probably fill that gap. And the the chief test of, of whether or not a man is born from above is whether or not he adds or subtracts. Whether or not he, let's put it this way, this is the way the Bible says it, whether or not he safeguards, tereo, that means to safeguard that book from addition or subtraction. There are other tests. That's a good one. Back to you, Roger. Another question. Do you think our enemies here, these Zionists, do you think that these are progeny of the Nephilim? Well, I do not. I see evidence of it. You're asking me my opinion. That's nice of you, and I'm giving you my opinion. I do not see evidence. No, I see evidence that there's something really weird about the way they act. Yes. It's hard to find something, a, a point of view as cold-hearted, cold-hearted at the core as that, as cold-hearted as to, we're talking about, well, we're talking about bad to the bone. We're talking about, here's what we're talking about, apostasy. Apostasy is a sin that is unforgivable. God will not forgive it. Once it happens, it's all over but to cry, and it's a done deal. That's called, the Bible calls it, the, Jesus Christ calls it, the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? The word apostasy has been applied to people that are followers of Babylonian Judaism. Now, what I don't want to do is say that I don't know. Here's, here's another conviction that's important to me. I don't know who who the descendants, I can't find enough evidence to say for certain that I know that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob, the blood Israelites in the flesh, are this group or that group. And I find in the Bible where the Bible says that God promises to obscure their identity, the identity of those people, to where no one will be able to identify who they are especially themselves won't even be able to identify it anymore. Well, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, and that started in the book of Esther, and it came to a head when all the genealogical records disappeared. And if all the genealogical records disappeared when the Roman general officer Titus burnt the temple in Jerusalem with all those records, and then add to it God's promise in the law of God in Deuteronomy to do that, and then add to it the book of Esther, which is the application of it uh, beginning in, in force, beginning to make that obscurity of their identity. Well, that means that I can't, uh, from my perspective, I don't have enough evidence. Roger, to, to say that this group of people, this racial group of people is the true blood Israel, or I am part of that racial group. We had a guy who used to come on here, Roger, you remember years ago from Indiana, and he gets wound up and mad at me because I wouldn't admit that I was Israel, blood Israel. I, I do admit that I am Israel because the Bible says I am, but what it's talking about, where it says it there, 
in the New Testament is, um, I have been born from above, born of the spirit. It's not talking about being born of the flesh. And the Bible promises that he will obscure that. What's that, Roger? I vaguely remember that, Wacko. Yeah. We, well, what he wouldn't, I, I wasn't against his point of view. I just didn't want him to be abusive to me and, and uh, try to take over the show, which he tried to do. And people every tried to time. Do yeah. every, every time he did it. Yeah. And I would invite him. Look, if you can just come back and be respectful again, the Christian life is about, about defending your own jurisdiction as much as you can and respecting the other fellow's jurisdiction. That's what it's all about. By the way, that is the definition of the kingdom of God, the kingdom Basileia of the New Testament and the Melik, Malika, Maluka, uh, the kingdom, the word, Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The definition of that word is God's arrangement of spheres of authority. A, a sphere of authority, and that, by the way, comes from the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, specifically uh, one of their leaders named Abraham Kuyper. He was a, the prime minister of the Netherlands back in 1907. The only prime minister, other, uh, let's see, but yeah, at that time, the, the first prime minister invited, the Congress invited him to come and speak before the United States Congress. And he was Dutch Reformed Church leader publisher of Das Standard, uh, which was the publication of that, and founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. When I say free university, free, I don't mean uh, it didn't cost anything to go there. I mean it was free from government, so they called it free. He was all about separating everybody, has a separate jurisdiction of authority, and we are to respect the other fellow's jurisdiction and we are to defend our own that God has given us. That was one of his key points. Well, that is the definition. Those Dutch reform fellows are awful cerebral too, by the way, like the Presbyterians. They're, they are the Protestant, the Protestant answer to Roman scholasticism. And that gets them in trouble sometimes. But their logic is a beautiful tool. But it's also, as Luther said, uh, logic is a whore. Uh, she'll do anything you ask her to do. All you have to do is start in the wrong place. If you wanted to come to the conclusion you wanted to come to, that isn't right. It's real easy, and people get good at it. Lawyers are good at it. But that's why we. That's why Luther, I admire Luther for saying logic is not the answer. That's why if the Bible establishes a fact under the doctrine of inerrancy, that ends the matter. Let's move on and see what, what it is, how we're supposed to obey. That's the point. That's what God's after. But... I don't have evidence of, of that. And I told this fellow from Indiana, I said, listen, all I know, he said he wanted me to admit that I was of the Germanic, uh, Scandinavian, Celtic uh, descent, and therefore I was the true Israel, or I am the true Israel. Well, I certainly see uh, an argument for that. I certainly see powerful evidence for it. And the winterized version of the Bible makes a point of, citing that evidence often, starting right from the very beginning, right on through, because it's powerful evidence. Our culture as uh, Germanic and Celtic people, our culture has been, is shot through with things from the Bible, but the trace, and this is what I said to him, the trace of the connection going back to that from the north of Europe is lost in the fog of antiquity. We can't make the trace, and besides that, as to me, 
I can only go back about four or five generations in the old graveyard of Mount Church at home, of who my ancestors are. <laughs> so even though I can look at their names and I can tell pretty well what country they came from, uh, but I, beyond that, I don't know anything. And I'd said to you, Roger, by the time you go back 20 generations, just it's a matter of simple arithmetic. By the time you go back 20 generations, you have well over a million ancestors. Do I know who they all were? Of course not. I can go back four or five generations because I can, and I knew a lot of them going back three, four generations, but get to the fifth generation. Then I didn't know them folk and, and, uh, it's lost. So I don't want to make that claim. Why? Because as we have said on this show very often, uh, the book of revelation says, woe unto them that say they are Israel and are not Israel. And that word woe is not to be taken lightly. That's a Greek Greek attempt in the Greek tongue, and that's the language in which the book of Revelation first written. John the Apostle wrote it. That uh, word there is a Hebrew word, a Semitic word, uh, transliterated, transliterated into Greek. That means they use Greek letters to try to reproduce the sound that would be made of the old Hebrew word. And Jesus Christ uses that word when he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hupokratos, stage actors, hypocrites. But that word in, the, in Hebrew means irreversible doom. Irreversible doom, that's coming back to the unforgivable sin that uh, Christianity has always called apostasy. Well, getting back to apostasy, Roger, so it has always been true in the English-speaking world and the said that people that followed Babylonian Judaism were apostates. That's the unforgivable sin. Why did they say that? And I have uh, long excerpts from Pollock, um, uh, Sir Frederick Maitland, um, English. Oh, very poet. famous English jurist. He wrote a piece one time called, uh, let me get it, Apostasy and the Common Law. Apostasy and the Common Law. Well, apostasy is important to understand, too. Apostasy is the same root as apostle. It's a, in the New Testament, the word apostle, of course, and it's not a, a, a special office of God. It is There were 12 impaneled jurors that we called the apostles. What apostasy means, that root, apo, is a Greek word that means from or away from, and sta, well, that's a Greek word too, and we actually, in the, in the you know, tracing our, our English tongue back, the Indo-European tongue, sta is a word, and Greek traces back to it, a root that means to stand. So we still say stand, and stopped in, in German is related to that. It means, here. Martin Luther says, here I stand. Stad, I can't do anything else. Well, sta means to stand. Apo means away from. Aposta, apostolic, apostolic, apostle, and apostasy. Now, all words, that's all the same root. All words are context neutral, all words. In other words, they can be used in a positive sense, a negative sense, a good sense, and a bad sense. And this word apostasy and apostles that way. If I say apostasy, what that word means fundamentally is to stand aloof, to stand, sta, apo, away, to stand aloof, to put it into English. An apostle, by the way, the apostles of Jesus Christ are those 12 men that were impaneled on the jury to witness the evidence of his identity and deliver their verdict. 
but they are men that stand aloof. When you're in the jury, friends, you are sequestered aloof. Mm-hmm. When, yes. And when you become a Christian, when you become born from above, increasingly God teaches you and you want to stand aloof from this evil system. You see that? Get That's out what, of her, people. Get out of her. There it is. And we're coming back to the same old stuff. Yeah, Roger and I have been talking about it. And we're coming back to the same stuff. It means to stand aloof. If you're a Christian man or woman, as you go on in life, you will increasingly want and it, to stand aloof from the traffic of this world. That's what it means. How to get out of Babylon. That's what God does for us. That's what we're going over on Sundays when we're talking about the book of Exodus, how he takes us out of the furnace of the evil empire. Well, apostle is a man that God, and not you, that God stands aloof. And you are also an apostle in that sense. It's not some fancy office. That's high church. It goes, it gets too much high church baloney. Uh, is there, are there 12 men that were in a special office? Yes. That was the jury. They're called apostles for that reason. But then that's the positive use of the word. Apostasy is the negative use. What does that mean? That means to stand aloof from the truth. To stand aloof in the evil empire from the truth. And that's the word that's come to describe the unforgivable sin. But we must add, why did they say that Judaism is the unforgivable sin? Maitland wrote this piece I quoted in the book, Excellence of the Common Law, at length. And I have a whole section in the book and also in a whole appendice and appendix in the back of the winterized translation of the Bible, the good book uncooked on apostasy at common law. Well, our common law tradition, that means our constitution is a slice of that is Christian to the core. And there could, anything that's not biblical in our common law tradition, our courts have always said is not part of our common law tradition needs to be scuttled. But, Apostasy at common law is this, and this is at at the Bible too, but Maitland was writing from the viewpoint of the common law. Apostasy is knowing the truth and then standing aloof from it anyway. Knowing who Jesus Christ is, having a full understanding of his redemptive work for his people, having even tasted of it, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6, and then standing aloof from it. Well, see, that's, that's what the, Jesus Christ said that the Pharisees did. The leaders of Babylonian Judaism did that. It isn't, they didn't want to kill Jesus Christ because they didn't know who he was. No, they killed him because they did know who he was in their heart of hearts, and they couldn't stand it. The envy drove them to it. He was afraid they were going to topple their, their system, their, their theft, their pedophilia, all of the, all of the, filling of the lust that they were able to do with their wealth and their drug use and opiates and all that they did and all of the Talmud, the tradition of the elders says they were doing. We can read it all. It's all there. Well, they knew all that. And the Bible says they did not deliver him because they were trying to follow the law of God. They delivered him out of envy. Envy is knowing the truth and hating it anyway. Paul the Apostle, to make the point, Paul the Apostle was one of them. He was their yeller-haired, upcoming boy. Young man had an equivalent of two or three doctor's degrees. He was a scholastic to the hilt. That's what Babylonian Judaism is. It's like Romanism. It's classicism. It's like 
Islam, all three of them, base what they do on Aristotle, my friends. That's what Thomism is, Thomas Aquinas, Scholasticism, and all the fathers. That's what Averroes taught in Islam. He discovered Aristotle. He's the one that delivered it to Europe and introduced it to Thomas Aquinas and to, they were all contemporaries, and to Mohammedes, the chief rabbi of that day. Those three religions are scholastic to the hill. Logic, logic trumps fact. That's what that's all about. Well, yeah. Paul Apostle, I'm, I, I got off. Roger, go ahead. I wasn't me. I, I think it was Paul. Yeah, I just want to jump in here for a minute. We've got about 33 minutes of the show left. That is probably the finest example, the explanation of the unforgivable sin and apostasy that I've ever heard in my entire life. Thank you for that. You did touch on excellence of the common law, and you talked about the good book on Cooks. Let, let's talk for a couple of minutes on other things you're doing on CommonLawyer.com and other appearances you have throughout the week, and maybe we can get some questions in the end of the show and not run out of time before you have a chance to talk about you. Well, thank you. That's a good idea. I'll finish this sentence and this, this contrast about apostasy, and then we'll, I'll take a breather. Paul the Apostle was a Pharisee. All the Pharisees knew the truth in their heart of hearts, and they rejected it anyway because their envy was so powerful. They just gritted their teeth, it says. And they, when the men stoned Stephen to death, they gritted their teeth. They knew he was telling the truth. They ground their teeth and killed him anyway. Well, Paul the Apostle said, I found favor. <coughs> I found acceptance with God because even though I was murdering Christian people, stealing their property, and sending them to prison. He said, I thought in my heart of hearts at that time that I was truly serving God. There are a lot, there's a lot of people like that through the history of the world. He didn't know. God, the Spirit of God had not yet enlightened his mind, and that's up to the Spirit. And therefore, he found acceptance with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But to know all that, to have the Spirit of God enlighten your mind to those truths and reject it anyway is apostasy is unforgivable. That's why it's called the sin against the Holy Spirit. Because once the Spirit enlightens your mind, opens your eyes and your ears, and you know. You see, you can't even know before, friends. You can't even know and you can't even do. Your will is not truly free. You're bound to sin, like Paul the Apostle says he was. Well, that's uh, the explanation of the unforgivable sin, apostasy, and that's why people said apostasy at common law is that because the Bible's example is the leaders of Babylonian Judaism haven't committed it. And what Maitland said about it, he cites the example of the young man, the Christian man who was a, a, a church leader who fell in love with a Jewess. And I think the name of the, the piece that he wrote is called yeah, it's called the uh, the the Jewess and uh, apostasy at common law. And he fell in love with her, and he took in part he took part in um, a practice of Babylonian Judaism there in England, the sacrifice of a little boy. The, what Maitland lays out in the testimony, and he searched for a long time to find the testimony of a man named Bolingbroke. He wanted to have reliable evidence of all the things that happened in this case, and that's what happened. He fell in love with the Jewess. He participated in uh, the Jude Judaism ritual of child sacrifice, 
he was tried. He would not recant, and so he was executed. That was the case study that he presented about it, and the reason was, again, apostasy because of the Bible's testimony about it. And not to say that every, every man who follows Babylonian Judaism, there's Paul the Apostle. Not every man is an apostate. Not every one of them has committed the unforgivable sin. I won't say that because uh, the Bible makes that pretty clear. Anyway, this is Brent Allen Winters, commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. And you can go to the website, commonlawyer.com. Join us, please join us for our course, Magna Carta, Clause by Clause and Blow by Blow. By blow. We're about halfway through Magna Carta now. And you can join. You can watch all the previous presentations, audio and visual, if you join the class. You can then join us for the ones coming up live. Sheriff Dar Leaf of Berry County, Michigan, teaches the classes with me. I'm thankful for Sheriff Dar. And he brings a lot of practicality to, and he's been studying the law for a long time. He loves it like I do. We both get together and and uh, teach the law of nature and the laws of nature's God using Magna Carta as the jumping off point. Join us for that. That's at commonlawyer.com. You can see how to do that. Then also, the winterized version of the Bible, as one lady affectionately called it, I call it the good book uncooked. A common lawyer translates and annotates the Bible from the original tongues, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek tongue of the New Testament. Um, over 35,000 footnotes you can look at to see why I translated this way or that, and also hundred over 160 appendices tracing major themes throughout the warp and the woof of the context of the text of the Bible. I call it toward a raw translation because I don't want to cook the book. I want to deliver it up just the way it was delivered to me. And one more point about that Bible, that by the target audience of that Bible, that translation from the original tongues, the target audience is me. And because the target audience is me, I did it for myself and all the notes that are there so that I can have notes to teach from no matter where I am or what I'm called upon to do. But uh, the notes there for that reason the target audience is me, but if you can get something out of it, and some have said, the many have said they do, do it. Um, that's that. And then the excellence of the common law, the comparative law text, 958 pages comparing and contrasting the law of the land with the law of the city on every continent and in every age, starting at the founding of the city of Babylon over 4,200 years ago. I'm bringing it right up to the present. And then also a book called... Uh, uh, Declaration of 76 and and Constitution of the United States, a common lawyer comments, clause by clause. And then a book called um, Don't Talk to the Police, uh, uh, an exposition, an unpacking of the reasons and the use and how to use the right to remain silent. It's a Christian doctrine from the Bible, by the way. And, and I point that out there. And then also uh, a militia of the several states are... are Constitution's answer to its enemies, foreign and domestic. That's an unpacking of the four militia clauses of our Constitution, of which the Second Amendment is the last militia clause, and how that goes together and how we've ignored all of them, but the, the last one, and that's why things are always touchy, because we've abandoned, as Justice Joseph Story of the U.S. Supreme Court says, that his great fear was that we would abandon or ignore and forget not only the politium, but the reality of our freedoms, which is the Second Amendment. And then a booklet about jury duty and 
what the jury is, where it came from. Now, there's a, one of the examples of trying to trace back uh, our 12-man jury and our grand jury, but the 12-man jury in our common law tradition, you can trace it back to the tribes on the north of Europe. That's true. But to trace it on back to the Bible, it's lost in the fog of antiquity. So you try to you look in the Bible and you say, well, clearly that's where we get the number 12 in our, in our English tradition, our common law tradition, our English-speaking tradition. We have 12 inches in a, in a foot, and 12 is a big number, the dozen, the 12, the long dozen, 120. Those are all important parts of our culture and our, even our system of measurement. Those are just a few of the examples, the fathom of the, of the sailor and the, uh, the foot uh, comparable to the body, the span of the hand and all of those things. I, I even talking about my mother's family, they grew tobacco down there in, in Kentucky, down toward Cane Ridge, and they sold it. And they did this for centuries in America. Tobacco was sold by the hand. Well, how do you measure a hand? Well, you pick up stems of tobacco and you put them with your left hand. You put them in your right hand until you you can't hold anymore. That's a hand. And then you take one leaf out of that hand and you wrap it around a certain way, bring it through the middle and pull it up. And that's how it's held together. And it's sold by that measurement, hand a hand of tobacco. Well, that's all part of our common law tradition. You can go to commonlawyer.com and find all those things. You can join us on Saturday on Patriot Soapbox, we're going through the book of Romans. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about predestination. We're unpacking what Paul the Apostle, we're using that word in the good sense there, that means he is a man that God has stood aloof from the traffic of this world. And and uh, he's unpacking there the sovereignty of God, the doctrine he calls election, what predestination is, and the order, the order of your salvation. How does that work step by step? Romans chapter 8, verses 29, the golden chain's been called for centuries. We've been uh, expounding that and making it clear. And then on Patriot Soapbox on Sundays and in church, we're going through the book of Exodus. We're talking about income tax. We're talking about our aloofness from the evil traffic of this world, how God affects that, how he affected it in the nation of Israel in those days. And what that means to us today is the same thing, friends. It's tangible. It's real. It's not some erythral idea. And we're talking about the income tax with that. Join us. And then right after that show on Sunday, then Roger comes on and Thumper has a show. And Roger and him talk about the things that Roger likes to talk about pretty much. Rod, of course, Thumper brings in his point of view in a strong way. It's his show, but Roger Roger's point of view is uh, he's there because of his point of view. So if you want to talk more about that and listen to Roger, you can do that. Well, it all comes back to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com. Go to the website and find out how to click on the links on your cell phone, your iPhone, your whatever phone you got or your computer and listen. And thank you so much. And I'll turn it over to Roger for a minute and I'll take a yeah. breather. Well, let's see if there's anybody that have got any questions or comments on all of that. Uh, Brent, as you're formulating those years ago, I stumbled on a book. I've never seen another copy of it. And I don't have that one, uh, called your heredament. I think we've talked about it before. Have you ever seen that book? No, I, that doesn't bring a bell Roger. I need to read it. It was written by a guy, I think up in, uh, Eastern Tennessee, uh, there in the Appalachians, and it's quite well-researched, his thick little book. And what he did 
was take the 12 lost tribes and trace them to Europe, not by the people, but by their heraldry and their symbols. Oh, we did talk about that. I remember. And he went to every country in Europe and went back historically and showed you their crest and their symbols and all that and identified them with one of the 12 tribes. The most interesting one of those was Judah was Germany. Uh Uh-huh. It just always rang with me. We talked talked about the Red Lion of Britain. Right. The Red Lion of Wales. Right. um, The symbol that goes back to the, the Lion of Judah. Yeah, all those things, that's why I say there's strong evidence. They're stronger than any other evidence you can find of any other people of that connection, including, well, there's no evidence of all that the people that say are they descended, they're descended from Israel or are. There's no evidence, not a sliver, just them saying so. And that's why the book of Revelation says, beware of those who say they're Israel who are not. At least in that case, yeah, but there's clear evidence outside of the Bible of some connection. That's right. I get your point. You know, I read it many years ago, probably close to 30, you know, and, uh, but I remember the the starkness with which it hit me. Maybe that's a way to put it. Uh-huh. Uh, and the other thing is here recently we had a king coronated over there, King Charlie. And, of course, the throne on which he sat, in which he was coronated, underneath that chair throne is the stone of Sion. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're talking about the stone that was taken from Scotland? Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. that's right. Scotland had it for about 200 years, and the Brits just went up there and got it fairly yep. recently. Yep, yep. and they, they did that. Their whole idea was they wanted, and they've been wanting to, to get the idea that there's such a thing in, on that island as a British man. But, of course, the Scots, a lot of them get mad about that, and the Welsh get mad about it, and the English get mad about it, and the Cornish get mad about it. <laughs> They say, no, 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 we're not, we're not British people. We're English. And the one guy that listens to this show emailed us one time. Remember Roger, and he corrected me because I talked about the Brits and he said, I'm not a Brit. I'm English. You know? so, right. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can appreciate that. I understand what they're saying, but this movement, Britain, Britain is a solidarity of culture. God in many ways, not all, but in many ways. And God has used Britain, the people that live there in a special and unique way to propagate his word, not because they're better than anybody else, not because they're smarter. This is the sovereignty of God. There's no question about it. And the point of view that you're talking about was pervasive and popular in the 17th century, in the 1600s in England. Are you there, Roger? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Make sure I didn't lose you. So that's it. It's not like, and Sir Flinders Petrie, the great archaeologist of Britain, made a presentation in November of 1917 to the British Archaeological Society. And the theme of his presentation was why, he said, why is it that among the best attested documents in all archaeology, well, he said the Bible is the best attested as a matter of reliability, and that's true. With, with hands down, so far and away, uh, ev- from an evidentiary point of view, there's no comparison to any other write- writings in the history of the world. That's the Bible. But then he talked about why is he said, why is it we ignore the chronicles of the Icelandic, Norwegian, Irish, 
Scottish, English, kings. I probably left something out there, but there is there are those documents. They're all they all go back to the same root, and there are hiatuses because the documents are old and they're rotted away. But in those hiatuses, you lay them all out together those doctor those documents, and you can fill in all the gaps. He said these are reliable. The evidence is clear. Why is it we ignore them now? We didn't ignore them. They were accepted as axiomatic back in the 1600s. And he was trying to get the interest going in them again because they dovetail perfectly with the uh, Table of Nations of Genesis chapter 10. Now, the fellow wrote a book. It's hard to get anymore. I have a couple of copies, but they're packed away. I wanted to get out to reference it again. The book by the name of the fellow is Bill Cooper. Uh-huh. He was a, He's a Brit, which means he's an Englishman, I guess, uh, in this case. But uh, Bill Cooper, the name of the book is After the Flood. It's not a very big book, but it is a stabbing book, and his research is really good, tying the the the, uh, the chronologies of the of the of the English, the Scottish, the Irish, the Icelandic the Norwegian, the Danish, there was the one I forgot, the Danish kings back to the same source. And um, all those are separate documents, but all together too at the same time. And his, the purpose of his book was to analyze those documents uh, and show the consider their consistency with Genesis chapter 10, what we call the table of nations uh, of the descendants of Noah. And that's where those, Chronicles go back to is Noah. And that, by the way, is another book that I want to put as uh, as important reading. I started a list. Some people requested it. Will you put a list of books on your website that talk about these, the, the, uh, our common law and our, the history of Christianity among the English-speaking people? And that is one of the books I want to put on there uh, called Bill Cooper, called After the Flood. I need to try to get copies of it. I think it's hard to get now, but go ahead, Roger. Thank you. I heard the other day that Noah was the worst preacher that ever lived. You ever heard that? How's that? He, he preached for 120 years and he only saved eight people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The object of preaching from God's perspective is not that anybody listens. The object is that we do the saying. We do it. That's the object. You're talking to the cubic foot air in front of your face. Once, right. a guy, once a guy understands that, life becomes much more tolerable. But when you're younger, you want to convince people and you want them to agree. And then you learn later that's not within my jurisdiction to make people agree. But it is within my jurisdiction to keep them from abusing me while I'm trying to talk. That's true. <laughs> well, what I've been trying to do for years now. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Nobody. This this yeah. is Bruce. Oh, now see there they reach for their mute. We're going to go for the female first, Bruce. Who is it? Who is the female? Hey, this is Joan. Uh, hey, Joan. Hey, Brent. Hey. Uh, so speaking of swearing, Brent, is it okay when people say, "I swear to God"? You know how people say well, that a lot, and then they yeah. finish. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, no, I would I would try to avoid that myself. I true, do try to avoid that, but it is a cultural habit that people say that. But the reason it would, I try to avoid it is because 
that's the, a violation of the very exact thing Jesus Christ said. He said, do not swear broadly. Flippantly. There's another word you can say, and don't swear flippantly. Be careful what you swear to. If you're going to do it, make sure you're swearing only by God, swearing, calling him in. But people say flippantly, I swear God. Well, no, that's a violation of what Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not swear generally, broadly, wholly, flippantly. That's the idea. Bruce? Yes, sir. Um, Brent, could there be a possibility to um, maybe come back to us and talk about being a good neighbor, how valuable a good neighbor is to each and every one of us, because we—that's what we are here. And you're we need to find out. You're fixing to find out how important good neighbors are, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you need to know who your friends are. That's for sure. Yeah, the word neighbor is some is often. Translated friend, the word in the Old Testament, translated neighbor, is often translated friend. It, it, the idea of a neighbor, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I'm trying to eat while I talk, doesn't always work. The idea of a neighbor <clears throat> is to, is the fella that it corresponds to you, corresponds to you. And, and as uh, the word peer, <clears throat> the Latin based word peer, is another word that is a synonym. We talk about a jury of peers that comes out of Magna Carta, pares, mm-hmm. the Latin word pares, the word peer, the word pair illustrates it well. It's the same root, P-A-I-R, not P-E-A-R, mm-hmm. but P-A-I-R. A pair of shoes are shoes that correspond to one another. <clears throat> I got this shoe on this foot and this shoe on that foot, and they are alike, and they even... Uh, face one another in a in a common way they're bent in a certain direction the way we do it today but uh, that is what you call your peer and the jury is a good example of that and your peer truly according to the bible your neighbor your peer what does neighbor mean well that's an old dutch word or an old i should say germanic word taken over into anglo-saxon english which is a germanic tongue the neighbor is the farmer down the road that's nigh to you. Nigh, nay, and nigh mean near, that's old English, and boar is old Germanic for farmer. Farmer. So they were all farmers. There weren't any cities in England, most ever. Like in America, up until World War II, most people lived out in the country and had some connection trying to farm. And so they that's the way they saw the world. And you've heard of the Boer War. Well, the Boers, that's a Germanic tongue, Dutch. They were the Dutch farmers in South Africa, and they called themselves Boers, which means farmers. We're just farmers. And mm-hmm. uh, neighbor is the fellow that lives down the road, or he's your neighbor. Uh, he's the farmer down the road. So we got the word neighbor. We got the word peer, which means one who corresponds to you as pair. And then we've got the word friend. And all three of those the Bible uses for that Old Testament word from the uh, relating to the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor isn't everybody, friends. That's a lie. That's not in the Bible. Your neighbor is in God's economy of law. Your neighbor 
listen to me close, is the one you have commonness with because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you both from every sin. That's exactly what it says in First uh, John chapter 1, verse 4. I write these things to you that you may understand, know, experience this fellowship with those with whom you have something in common, namely at the foundation, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from every sin, all sin, past, present, and future. You're cleaned up. That's what, that's who your neighbor is. And that's why the Bible says, for example, Peter the Apostle puts it this way, love the brotherhood, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So honor all men. He starts with that. He ends with honor the king, which is the same thing as saying, uh, treat the king and everybody else with the same honor you would treat the king. And treat the king with the same honor you would treat every other man, every other man. Honor all men. Okay, we got that one out of the way. And then in the middle it says, honor all men. Fear God. Now that means, listen, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You don't fear men. No, no, no. That's a totally different. You fear God. You call him, when you swear an oath, you call him in. Uh, like the Westminster Confession says, swear by that dreadful, dreadful. It's a beautiful word. Dreadful name. Why do we say dreadful? Because the Bible commands us to fear him and no man. Fear him, said Jesus Christ, who can hurl your body and soul into hell. Do not fear him that can only destroy the body. There it is again. So honor all men. Okay, that's it. Fear God. Then what? Love the brotherhood. That's different. It doesn't say love everybody. It doesn't say love all men. You won't find that in the Bible, friends. You are to honor all men. Oh, yes. But love all men? No, no, no. Isn't it funny in popular Christodom, D-U-M-B, that that's what people say? Even in our Bible-believing evangelical churches, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. Find that one in the Bible. It's not there either. <laughs> it's not in there, friends, because sin is not something, law-breaking is not something that floats around in the air, erythrial. You cannot, you know, the, the love of God that God gives to us, he gives it to us so that we will love the brother. And why is that important? Because the Bible says, by your love, by our love for one another, God's people, the ones that are born from above, that have been cleansed from every sin, by our love among ourselves, the rest of the world will know us. And we are to hold ourselves aloof in that. And that's what God says draws in his people to us, to the truth. Our love one to another and to do anything else is not the government of God. It is not the way of God. And it is the hatred of all other men if you don't do it that way. Because that's the way God draws men in when they see our love one for another. We are to treat each other especially. We are to give preference to our Christian brothers and sisters. But knowing where to draw that line is key. That's why I said God provides us the evidences he wants us to use to draw that line to treat them that way because that can be dangerous. That's why discernment is so important. Impertinent? Impertinent? No, impertinent. No, it's so important. I'm talking so much, my tongue's getting tangled. Um, That's why it's so important. Roger. 
I want to stick something in I think you might find interesting. Mentioned it the other day. We're talking about neighbor, right? In Spanish, the word for neighbor is vecino. Okay. In the vicinity. Oh, okay. Yeah, nigh. Yeah. That's good. So, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought it through. Somebody's saying something there. Uh, Brent, sorry. Listen, this week uh, a lawyer said the truth about the Trump indictment, that that was his secret. And you were talking about oaths and swears and promises. How true is that? Do you remember that, Roger? Diva Bar well, talking about Trump's secret? Talk, talk. You know, I like you. it's a little difficult to hear you. Can you talk right into the phone again? Oh, I was speaking of uh, the lawyer, Viva Burns, talking about yes. Trump indictment, and that is his secret, and his secret alone, and only for his own benefit. How close is, how true is that, since you were talking about Brent, about swears, about promises, about oaths? Are you talking about the papers that he was holding? No, I'm talking about, remember you mentioned that one show where Viva Burns, that one lawyer, spoke yes. about... A Trump indictment, and he's saying that that in that, those were his secrets, Trump's secrets, only his alone and for his own benefit. Is that true? I don't know. <clears throat> yeah, I, I I'm having a hard what, time what you, hearing. It. It? I'm Biden. having a I'm having a hard time understanding. So I I get I'm just picking up a word here and there for some reason your voice is not coming through. You're saying something that so we had I guess talked about earlier on in the reference to Barnes and Barnes saying that Trump's secrets were his secrets. Is that what you're saying about the Correct. paper about all the classified documents? I, I think what you're saying is that uh, when you're the president, it's your discretion to disclose what's secret and what's not. So. Yeah. That's the presidential. There's a there's a piece of legislation, the presidential uh, something act that covers all that. But these people are throwing all that stuff out the window. You know, I heard somebody say yesterday that this guy Jack Smith, when he was getting the grand jury thing, he never brought in the presidential secrets act or whatever it's called, and he never brought up about uh, Clinton taking all those conversations and keeping them in his sock drawer. Yeah, those those pieces were not presented to the grand jury. Well, it's absolutely it's an absolute truth that presidents have uh, authority under a constitution of the United States to negotiate with other countries in private. Not obliged to tell anybody what he's saying, what he's doing until it comes time to consummate some kind of an agreement and then. Only the Senate of the United States has the power to okay that. Yeah. We're flying by the seat of our pants today because I don't have the music bed with us. So I don't know. But we probably ought to go ahead and knock this off of Euro folk, Paul. And uh, listen for the folks that are listening. We'll be back tomorrow. May have music, may not, but we'll be back tomorrow regardless. So thanks. I hope you got something out of the program today, and we covered an awful lot of very important ground today. So thank uh, you. We actually have a minute and a half left before we get to the top of the hour. So, well, But I'm, I think I'm not at the right time. Or, okay, whatever. 
we'll cut it off. I got a quick question, Roger. Hey, Samuel. Hi. I got a quick question for Brent. Um, Brent is Samuel. I, uh, uh, my opening line of my affidavit, I'm, I'm trying to include my creator in all of my documents. And uh, this is my opening line. I want to see if you feel it's okay. I, my name, being of sound mind and lawful age, do solemnly declare to all and my heavenly Father. And then I go on. Well, that's a very Christian thing to say. <clears throat> that's a very Christian thing to say. Uh, Judaism and all the Bible, you can't find any references to God the Father of Judaism. Judaism would never use those words. Islam rejects the whole idea of God as Father, as you know. Uh, God is uh, just brutal to Judaism. They, there's no uh, tenderness. There's no fatherhood. There's no care. And uh, it, Judaism is the same way. And so to say God the Father, when Jesus Christ said, when he taught the, his, uh, his 12 jury members how to pray, he said, he started out and said, Our Father. That was earth-shaking to his listeners. Our Father who art in heaven. Never before heard, never done. It was foreboden to say that. That was too familiar. So when you say our Father, you're asserting biblical doctrine of the Savior himself, and it's earth-shaking. That's right. So I don't see anything wrong with it. Roger, do you see anything wrong with it? No. No. And we wrapped up the show at the word earth-shaking. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's why that's why I chose it, Brent, because it you know it came right out of Christ's mouth. <laughs>